Welcome to What Else? This episode features Ella Myers, and we'll talk about a range of subjects. So, rather than me tell you what we're going to talk about, I'm just going to let you listen to the conversation. I'd like to thank our friends at the Chicago Podcast Cooperative for helping make this happen. This episode of What Else? is brought to you by our sponsor, Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad. Enjoy. So, let's get on with what else. Here's Ella Myers. Yeah, let's see what happens. Is it recording? I think we're recording. Okay. Yeah. I agree. If somebody, well, we'll talk about this. Let me say, I'll just set us up. Uh, welcome to what else? My guest is Ella Myers. What's your middle name? Christina with, with a, a K. K. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay. Ella K. Myers. Um, we're just talking about uh, life and longevity. Well, I mean, like the <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I was just saying that I think if somebody that's roughly of our generation has a grandparent pass away, that is, mm-hmm. I mean, unusual that you would still have, have a grandparent a, right. living. And then also just, you know, sort of the, the way of the world. It's right. not, it doesn't seem like a tragedy. I agree. Do you, I think it's interesting. Well, I feel like sometimes the longer someone's around, the more used to them you are right so they're kind of more attached in some ways you could be but that's true i mean yeah especially i guess if you were like close to a grandparent they were probably they're like a fixture in your life and then i mean anytime anybody's gone it's kind of right i mean there is something shocking i guess about somebody's just absence no matter how old they are no matter right how predictable it was they're just right there's a difference between going and gone (laughs) yes Yes, there is. Um, do you ever think about like how long you want to live? Or do you Ugh. feel like you have the impulse to? I. You're going like right to the heart of the matter. Um, I don't think I think about how long I want to live, other than vaguely feeling like I would like to live a longish life, and I would prefer. To go out before I'm, you know, unrecognizable, mm-hmm. kind of. So I think about it more like that. Like it would be nice to not have hardcore dementia. It would be nice to not be like completely physically disabled, right? That kind of thing. But it's not so much like a number. I mean, I'd rather get to be around like see my kid grow up and do stuff and mm-hmm. but not like I want to live to be 95 or right do you do you have like a no I think it's more the same thing I'd rather have a good run whatever that means right and then it's going to be over at some point sure I, I think I understand the impulse to kind of want to live forever but I don't actually think that that's that interesting yeah yeah, I mean, there aren't that many versions of living a long time that look 
great. I mean, you see the the occasional exception, and that's like very sort of interesting. And right, but I mean, I think mo- the people I've been around, I did have two great grandmothers who lived to be like ninety six and ninety seven, something like that. So I did see them in very old age, and I have to say, like, definitely like past ninety, it's sort of. In both of those cases, it was like, I don't know that this is really a great time for mm-hmm. for anybody, for those individuals, and then for everybody trying to kind of right. care for them. And it, although I did see a picture the other day of a race that was all people over 100. A foot race. A foot race. Oh, yeah. And it was, uh, I think it was like the two, it was like a 200 meter race or something. And there were, and there was a guy, the guy who won it, won it by like a lot and was very quick. And everybody in the race was over 100 years old. And that's, I thought that was pretty that's cool. That's awesome. I feel like I maybe saw a story about, I don't know if it's the same guy, but an older person who has done it several years and has been. Could be the same guy. What I saw was just like a video of the race. Okay. And the race itself, I mean, look it up. It's totally worth watching. Sure. But he was also just like killing it. I mean, he was he was like. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty way good. Way out ahead. Right. If you're in good physical and mental condition, then you're. Yeah. Like you're good. It doesn't. Right. Um, so I don't know. I can't, don't know what the current stuff is, but you ever think about the. Um, right. There are certain states now where you can decide to end your own life legally. Right. Yeah. I think maybe. I mean, I think Oregon was the first, and I think now some. Maybe California, like too. Um. I mean, I think that's probably – are you asking my opinion on it? Yes. <laughs> I think that's probably a good thing. I mean, I don't have, like, a strong position on it, but I feel like that seems like that should be among the possibilities available to people. I mean, you can make people without any <laughs> right. supervision or right. approval. Right. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it seems, it seems better to have like a system set up where people can do that with the support of like a doctor and medical professionals and stuff so that it goes smoothly as opposed to people feeling like they have to do that on their own or like do it Mm -hmm. secretively or enlist somebody to help them and worry if that person's going to get in trouble. And I mean, that seems kind of... Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think? I think it seems... It's hard to say, I think, unless you're really in the shoes, but it does seem like there are people who are unhappy enough about things that actually aren't going to change. Health stuff. Right. Right, or mental capacity stuff where they might really... And it, it's just there is no chance it's going to get better, and they might yeah. want to not sit through the last couple innings, you know? Right. Yeah, it seems like it could potentially be, like, comforting to know that that is available, even if you don't actually avail yourself of it. Just the idea that, like, if you were in, like, just unspeakable pain and, like, there was n- no point, it would kind of be maybe some small comfort to be like, well, I have another option or something. Yeah, but that's right. 
I don't know. Yeah, I wonder if it changes how it looks if you know you have the option. That maybe that makes you even less likely in some cases to yeah. take it because you know. Right. I mean, I I think that there's, I think the rules even in like Oregon are pretty strict. Like you have to get that all kind of arranged while you still Mm -hmm. have all of your wits about you. You have to have like several doctors like confirm that you have a condition that would qualify, right? It's not, it's not like even a super depressed person who doesn't have like an additional (laughs) serious, you know, physical problem is not going to you know, it's not going to be eligible or whatever. So it seems like there's like lots of kind of safeguards in place to try to assure that it's only used in, right. you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about yeah. this for people who are listening and maybe sure. don't. Let's just assume <laughs> that somebody's listening, first of all. Okay. Um Tell me a little about, so you grew up in California, is that correct? Um, yes, I grew up in California. I was born in Minnesota. Oh. Um, but, uh, Where in Minnesota? Park Rapids, Minnesota, which is a tiny town up north. Okay. Um, I'm not very good on the geography, honestly, but I was born there because my um, parents had, they were hippies and they decided to go live off the land and they bought like a farmhouse. They were doing that up there. Yeah. Well, my dad was born in Minnesota, too, and he had family there. And so they sold all their stuff in California and moved out there, and they bought 40 acres and, like, a farmhouse. And they were, like, raising animals and food. and. But, I mean, I don't really have memories of that. There's some cool pictures of us, like, out on the, you know, me sitting in, like, my dad's lap riding a tractor. And uh, my mom was doing crazy stuff, like, like getting the wheat from their fields and grinding it into flour to make bread and then like getting the leather from their cow to make me like baby moccasins and like they were they were way way in it deep into it so how old were you how long did you live there only till i was two and then we moved to california and then that's where i grew up where in california so really like my family on both sides are all from Modesto, which is like the Central Valley of California. Um, So that's kind of where I think of myself as being from. But I actually lived with my mom and my sister and my stepdad in L.A. from the time I was 4 to 14. So L.A. and the Central Valley. But the Central Valley is where, like, everybody is now and Mm -hmm. where I sort of – where I would go back to or whatever. So obviously growing up, where one grows up like that's kind of what you know but do you have any sense of it now like do you think back and think like oh LA at that time that was a good place to grow up or mm-hmm. not a good place or I think that even as I was there as a kid mm-hmm. I thought LA was not a great place to grow up and it might have been because I had the contrast of another place so every so even when I lived in LA I would go visit my dad who lived in Modesto I would go visit him um, for holidays and I would also stay with my sister and I would stay with him for like eight weeks in the summer so we had this like chunk of time where we were in like a different location and our grandparents were there and like we had Mm -hmm. aunts and uncles there and stuff so that was like a place that we knew pretty well Um, and not that Modesto is perfect by any stretch but it's very different 
than L.A. So I think I always had that sense that, like, there was something weird about L.A. I think L.A. is, like, a very hard place to live if you don't have a lot of money. I mean, a lot of cities are like that, but I just remember being – I think L.A. is maybe extra strange in that regard because there is – there are very like visible kind of like ostentatious displays of wealth that are kind of what people associate with LA. Like when you think of Hollywood or Malibu or whatever, but then like the actual way lots of people in the city are living is like pretty <laughs> down and out. Um, and so I think I just was very like aware of that. And I went to like a, particularly in junior high, I went to a school that was, um, that had a lot of rich kids and like a lot of my friends were rich and we were very much not. We lived in a, we rented a 900 square foot duplex and lived in, you know, it was fine. We we weren't, you know, suffering, but it was a totally different thing. And I just, I remember being very like self-conscious about that, about like having friends over and like having been to their house. And because like I went to a school where kids live, came, it wasn't a neighborhood school. It was like a magnet school. So kids were from, you know, like everywhere. So you'd go to somebody's house and they lived in like a palace in like Brentwood or whatever. And then you'd be like, want to come to my house across the street from the North Hollywood police station? It's pretty (laughs) sweet. Um, yeah, and I also didn't like that it was sunny all the time, which I'm sure you would have. N- I get it. When I was a kid, I loved the cloudy days. Okay. Yeah. Because I may have I may have told you this already. I can't remember, but it sort of it tells you a lot about how I felt about LA, and also probably just about me as a kid. Which is, so my sister and I shared this room, and we had bunk beds, and I would get so tired of the unrelenting like sunlight that I would do this thing where I would hang a wool blanket over the window and then I would hang a wool blanket over the bottom bunk and get into the bottom bunk to create the illusion of an overcast day for myself. That's good stuff. (laughs) I get it. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's too much of a good thing. You know, like a sunny day is awesome when you live somewhere like, like Chicago or even like where I live now, like Salt Lake City. It's like, the sunny day is like in contrast to something, and so it feels like special. But when it's just like, it's like I try to explain to Saul, like you, he he will say sometimes like he wishes every day was his birthday. I'm like, no, bud. Like every day of your birthday would just like diminish the birthday, right? It's got to be like distinct. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that sometimes the sunny days make me feel like I ought to be outside whereas if a cloudy day gives you an excuse to right do inside things. right yeah i think i have that a little less than you i mean i know mm-hmm. that about you that like you feel compelled to be like yeah. active and taking advantage of it that probably is a thing about living in a city where you know that there's six months out of the year that you are going to be miserable in terms right. of the weather you know right. like That's you probably feel more pressure to like make the most of that the, makes sense i have that a little bit right now just coming back to chicago i was like well, i gotta get out and ride my bike i gotta like go to the park while i can like yeah. all this stuff because i'm like pretty soon i'm gonna be yeah that's right yeah so you've you've lived where else generally speaking so mostly in california um so i was in LA. Then, then we moved back to Modesto for high school. And then I went to college in Santa Cruz, which is also in California, but Northern California. And then I lived in Chicago for eight years. And then one year in Walla Walla, Washington. 
then nine years in Salt Lake City, and now I am spending this year in Chicago. Yeah. Is there a kind of place that you haven't lived that you would like to live? Well, that's a good question. Kind of place? You mean like sort of a like, region or a Yeah, either a specific a place or even just like I'd like to live in a gigantic city or I'd like to live right. in a remote, I don't know. Yeah. Or I'd like to live in a, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't mind living in a city. There's, there is a type of city I would be interested in living in, which is like a not huge city, but I mean, this is going to sound like the city I live in, but it's not. Um, like I would be interested in living in Milwaukee. I would be interested in living in St. Louis. I would be interested in living like, like the, that kind of like second tier mid-sized city. I think I would right. be quite happy in. Because I, I like city stuff, but I don't actually need it to be, like, quite as intense as it often is. Right. I don't think – I'm not somebody who's, like, wanting to go, like, live in the country or live in, like, a super tiny town. I mean, we did that briefly for, like, a year when we were in Walla Walla. And that might have been influenced by the fact that it was just, like – I mean, that was fun, but it was also just, like, super remote. So you also couldn't, like, get to a city readily right. if you wanted to. I might feel different if it was, like, a little place, but you could get mm -hmm. to a bigger place or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah, I've always really liked Milwaukee. I've always, like, been – I've always, like, joked, like, if there's ever a job in Milwaukee I can apply to, I'm applying. Yeah, I like that place, too. Yeah, it's nice. It's, like, a little Chicago-y, but not as, like – you have closer access to nature, and mm -hmm. it seems to be a lot of It just feels a little mellower. For sure. Yeah. yeah the, the hostility and aggression <laughs> haven't flowered there like they have yeah. in Chicago. Yeah. So I'd say maybe that's it. Like, I know that's not very... I mean, I would love... I don't know that this is really in the cards. I would love to live, like, in a city outside the United States for like a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have l very limited experience with that. I spent like one summer living in Berlin, um, which I loved. And if there was like a way I could, you know, finagle some sort of like research thingy or whatever, right. um, I think living like somewhere, but again, I kind of want it to be a city. I don't really want to go live like, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know field in the south of france or a rainforest or whatever yeah those sound pretty good to me. i mean i know yeah. i know you can go do that one okay um so you touched on that so you're for listeners your uh job now is a college professor right is that a fair description Correct. yes okay um is that something you, like, when did you decide that's what you wanted to do, or at least wanted to do for a while? I figured it out sometime while I was in college. Like, I basically went to, probably when I started at UC Santa Cruz, if you'd asked me what I wanted to do, I would have said I wanted to be a lawyer for the ACLU. Mm -hmm. That was, like... I was all, like, politicized in high school and, like, thought that seemed, like, the coolest thing. And so, you know, which is not, like, completely unrelated to what I do now, but it's, like, a different 
angle. But then when I was there at the university, like I took these classes in political theory and I loved them like so much. And I also loved the university setting so much Mm -hmm. that I kind of just got keyed into like, I just want to like never leave (laughs) basically. Like it, I wasn't like I'd ever really thought about being a professor before, but I was just like, well, I could keep going to school and like do more of more learning, which I want to do. And then on the other side of that, I could like, continue to be in a university like right it just was sort of more like oh yeah the this way is the kind of thing i want to stay like, in that environment yeah because it was so like stimulating to me and like kind of so it was more gradual it was just sort of mm-hmm. and also like i don't come from a family where anybody was an academic it's weird because in academia lots of people who are professors have like professor parents and stuff and i feel like they know more of the, like the lay of the land or whatever like i didn't I had no clue, like, how, what it was like to be a professor. Like, I didn't even know. I think when I remember, like, having to figure out the difference between, like, a master's degree and, like, a PhD and stuff. Like, while I was getting ready to apply to grad school. Like, Mm -hmm. I just had no context for anything. So sometimes it feels a little like I just sort of stumbled into it. But it wasn't, like, a bad stumble. It was, like, I mean, it was coming from a place of, like, I want to keep doing this but i didn't totally know what that meant how do you feel about that facet of it now are you still like yeah i want to stay in this environment forever or not after i've seen your workplace (laughs) um i i don't feel that quite as much although there are definitely moments where, you know, just like moments in teaching or a particular like conversation with it could be with a student or it could be with like another professor or something where I'm like, that ah, is pretty cool that we get to like think about these big questions and like there's a lot of BS in the world. And so it does feel kind of like sort of special to be able to try to like talk about things that matter, even though I know sometimes from the outside it seems like what people are doing at universities is like pointless i don't i mean i don't feel that way and so there are times where i'm like yeah this is like this is it like we're you know like i don't know yeah but but that's not like day in and day out also like different universities and different colleges have very different you know sort of cultures to them and it's you know it can, it's very it's not just like there is a university or a college setting. It's like mm-hmm. it varies a lot depending on where you are, you know. So that affects the like day-to-day of it. Can you tell me a little about what you do? Like I'm not sure I understand what a day is like or what a week would be. Um, I mean, I understand that like you're a spending normal. a few hours in front of right. people. Ter- so a normal... Them like week let's say when i'm teaching my full teaching load and i'm doing my usual stuff on campus it would be probably like in a normal semester i teach two classes so i would be teaching my classes and it usually would be like one class in political theory and one class in gender studies and I teach those two classes but like you said that that actual teaching amount is like well, I don't know six hours a week or something I mean those classes meet usually twice a week for like an hour and 20 minutes so that's like actually a small amount of time in terms of like in the classroom but then outside of that I'm doing things like 
related to the teaching. I'm doing things like, you know, preparing to teach, meeting one-on-one with, um, like, students in office hours, grading, like, all the kind of auxiliary stuff. But that, honestly, is probably, like, 30 to 40% of my time, like, the teaching, all-inclusive teaching-related stuff. And then probably... 60-ish percent of my time is research, which um, for me looks like reading books and trying to have deep thoughts to other people. Like even in my own department, it might mean like field work, like going out and interviewing people or crunching a bunch of numbers or, you know, so there's like different forms that research takes. For me, it's it's mostly like text-based and it's like lots of would look very boring to anybody observing me it's like sitting at a desk like reading and writing and whatever sounds pretty good it's pretty good and then like probably 10 percent of my time is like what they call like service which is sometimes it can be more than that but ideally it's like 10 percent, which is like commit being on com- assorted committees at the university faculty meetings like um and a lot of that stuff is really boring and but the stuff with student like the I'm not counting like meeting with students among that meeting with students is good and that's part of the teaching part but the part that's just like we're gonna sit in this room and write like another memo about something that's like never going to make any difference to anybody that part I could do without but (laughs) and now I'm in the part of my like so-called career where I have like more of that because I have tenure which means then they feel free to like ask you to do a lot of that stuff so the fact that i fled the campus for this year means i'm like off the hook for all that yeah so it's pretty sweet that's good so we'll come back to the this year thing but um well maybe it goes together Mm. when you are doing the research stuff yeah and you're reading um are you give a specific goal or something or you're just like I'm going to check some things out and then maybe that may eventually coalesce into something I'm going to write or add to my teaching like is it free form or um I mean it it depends on the phase of the research I guess so like early on in a research project it it often is kind of free form like you have like a question maybe you're interested in or like a problem or something and you might be an example question uh So a question I'm, like, working on right now is sort of trying to understand um, kind of the persistence of anti-black racism in the United States and trying to understand to what degree, like, white American citizens um, derive some kind of psychological benefit from that, like, repeated performance of, like, both kind of, like, spectacular forms and then more mundane forms of anti-black violence like what is the sort of it's it's a hard question to ask but it has to do with sort of like what is there at least among some all this is to be (laughs) sort of determined but is there like an an attachment to that kind of subordination that makes whites feel sort of better about themselves so and the way I'm approaching that question right now is through like the work of a particular thinker. So I'm reading a bunch of work by Double E. B. Du Bois, who was you know a black kind of radical um, intellectual from the 
early 20th century, mostly. He lived a long time. Um, and, you know, he, he sort of has some interesting ways of thinking through that problem. I mean, partly he sort of situates it within capitalism and says basically, like, poor whites are kind of... Um, do you really want to hear about this? Or am I? <laughs> okay, so poor whites get what he calls a psychological wage um, that that sort of makes them feel better about their position within the class hierarchy. Like they're able to reconcile themselves to like how shitty their life is under capitalism. But that psychological wage is oh is whiteness itself, right? That that's the way they are able to feel okay about their condition because they see themselves as like over and above. Black people. And he also argues that's like what prevents he was a he was a communist. So he's also arguing like that's what prevents like a cross racial class alliance like between poor whites and poor people of color is because that racial antagonism is so pronounced. And it's also kind of manipulated by capitalist elites to like Mm -hmm. keep everything sort of in place. So partly I'm reading his work. I mean, he's writing, he's writing that in a completely different time and place. I mean, he's commenting on sort of industrial capitalism in like the Jim Crow era. So it's, it's a different time and place than our own, obviously. But I'm interested in like how he's thinking through that kind of interaction of, of race and class. And I'm, I'm especially interested in like what he thinks can be explained sort of by capitalism, like to what degree he wants to say like, well, this this kind of racial hierarchy is kind of a function of capitalism or to what degree he seems to be saying that there's something like even beyond that, like there's almost like a sadism to it that isn't even accounted for by how screwed over white people are. Right. So that's, yeah. So when you're you're thinking about this and then you're doing readings that pertain to this. Yeah, and it's kind of like a back and forth. Like I'll be reading... I'll read his stuff. I'll read other work on him, but then I'll also be reading like contemporary stuff on racial violence and things like that and trying to kind of, and as far as like the scope of the research goes, it's like it, this, at some point you sort of have to figure out like, is this something that I'm going to address like in something that's like the length of an article or is this something that's going to be like a much bigger project, like a book or something? Right. Um, so sometimes you don't know that until you start working on it. And then you have to figure out, like, what is the proper, you know, sort of Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Framework is, when for you're it. going into it, do you have a, a goal of what an output is going to be from it? Or I mean, I don't always have that in, at the very start. But, like, mm-hmm. now I do know that I'm working on a book. So this yeah. is – but that that was sort of – that's like a process of coming to that realization of like, okay, the, the sets of questions I want to ask, the kind of things I want to do, it's like big and it probably needs to be a book as opposed to like other things I've written before where I'm like, no, this is kind of like a one-off. This is like a journal article and then like I'm done, you know? So are you, are you actually like writing as you go or? I am writing as I go um, partly because, I mean, a lot of the ways people – I don't know. It seems like this is true of my colleagues as well. Like the way you sort of like force yourself to have like deadlines is like with conference papers and things like that. So if you know you are going to have to present something, that's like kind of a built in deadline um, that helps you get some stuff done. So you're not like, I'm going to try to write a book in the next three years, which can just be like completely amorphous and overwhelming. So like I'm about to go give a paper and 
on this stuff I was just talking about. And so that was like a kind of short-term deadline where I wrote like a 25-page paper that I'll present there, I'll get feedback on, and then I'll go from there. Interesting. So do you, how do you, how do you get a gig to present a paper? Do you like write to a conference and be like, I have a topic you want to hear about me? Uh, a, a little bit. I mean, so this is like a giant conference. This is the American Political Science Association conference. So it's like the main conference for my discipline, for people who are teaching political science um, or some of them are doing other things in political science but not teaching. And so it happens every year and you send an abstract in, which is you know, just like a short description of the paper you want to present. And Put then that they in either. Your dossier. Yeah. <laughs> and then they either um, accept you or don't. Um, I mean, the thing that's funny talking about like knowing where your research is headed or, you know, how, how you sort of like plan for that is like you have to apply for this stuff like almost a year before it happens. So that that abstract is always this weird kind of like promissory note because it's Mm -hmm. like usually you haven't done that work yet. And so you're both trying to like anticipate for yourself, hmm, like nine months from now, what do I think I will be working on? But then you also have kind of like backed yourself into a corner where you're like, well, now I have to produce something. So um, so it's kind of good, but it, it I've definitely had times where I'm like panicking or I feel like I said I was going to do something that I now have no interest or no business doing or whatever. So so in terms of like your process to actually get stuff done, yeah. to, to do writing, uh, do you set aside like certain, like I'm from 8 to 11 this morning, yeah. I'm going to sit and type stuff and how do you do that? It's hard. I mean, I don't, I don't think I have, I think some people who write, some people who are writers have like very clear rituals that work for them. I've always felt like, I mean, even though I have written a book before, like, I feel like every time I'm writing something, it's like, I feel like, how did I ever write anything? Like, Mm -hmm. um, I do know that I tend to produce better work and do better stuff if I do it at the start of my day like that's just how I'm wired so generally if I have like a deadline like for this last couple weeks when I've been writing this paper most of the actual like writing happens in like the first few hours of the morning and then I might do other work later in the day but it's going to be more like proofreading or like reviewing a mm-hmm. something I read or like I think like if you're doing serious like composing of writing there's like at least for me there's some like law of diminishing returns after like hour four or something Mm -hmm. where it's like your your brain just gets or my brain i should say gets tired and at that point i need to kind of like do something different are you able to do it just sort of on demand you know like are you able to sit down and like it's eight o'clock it's time to start i'm going to start typing stuff or are there times where you sort of, like, hit a vein and you're like, okay, I'm rolling. I've got something here. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it feels, like, agonizing and, like, horrible. And you can't, like, even, you know, I don't know. There have been times where you're just, like, you're, like, one sentence is just, like, a nightmare to somehow, like. Mm-hmm. And then other times, like, you feel like you've kind of hit a nice stride and it's sort of coming. But 
um, I mean, a lot of it is also just like weird psychological tricks you have to like play on yourself because it's like this is work that's like all it's it's all kind of like self disciplined work, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so I mean, if you're sitting at your laptop, there's lots of other things you could be doing rather than write the paper, right? There's lots of internet to surf and, you know, or like if I'm working at home, there's always like dishes I could do or whatever. So a lot of it is just like trying to trick yourself into feeling like you have to do this thing. Yeah. And like, and I do a lot of like incentivizing myself Mm -hmm. to work. So I'll be like, you have to sit here and do this for like three hours. But then after that, you get to take a walk and go to the thrift store or something like Yep. You know, it's all like a, I mean, I went through a real sad period writing my dissertation uh, when we lived in Andersonville where I would like get up and I, I was like in, I was in the thick of it. Like I really had to write a lot quickly and my reward would be taking a shower. I mean, that, that's how low it got. I'd be like, I I'm like going to sit here and write for the next four hours and then I get a shower. That sounds solid actually. <laughs> I've been there. Yeah. That's a good. Yeah. Nice self-care you know exactly it's a good reward yeah um you like thrifting right that's one of your Mm -hmm. things i do i never use it as a verb though oh i see you like going to thrift stores (laughs) yeah i i I was just teasing i I understand yes Uh, i've always really enjoyed that yeah yeah that's something i got into like in high school um I don't know. I just like to sort of wear weird clothes and be different. And at that time, like going to thrift stores, at least in my podunk town was like not really a thing. So like there was just amazing stuff there because like nobody was in, you know, it wasn't cool yet. This is like 1990, 91 kind of thing in Modesto, California. And I mean, I still like think about some of the dresses I had that I just stupidly didn't hang on to but anyway so I got really into that in high school like it was a thing I would do and like I had with my other friend we just go and like scour all these places and it was really fun um yeah and then and then like especially when I lived in Chicago like in my early 20s and stuff I got and I've always liked like I really like yard sales mm-hmm. state sales like anything I just like the tr- the treasure hunting like aspect of it. And I did grow up going to yard sales actually, even before that's, I forgot about that. Even before going to thrift stores in high school, um, my dad always liked yard sales. And so we would like go to yard sales, like on the weekend in the summer and it's you know, great. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. I, sometimes those things to me, I, it's fun to find a cool thing or a, a rarity or a great mm-hmm. deal. Um, but it's also sometimes just the looking part. It's like going to a museum of the past yeah. in that area, right? It's well, especially like the um, the estate sales, like right. because that. I mean, that is much I go for like voyeuristic, like <laughs> um, sort of desires as anything else. Because it's like sometimes you really do get to see like how somebody lived. Like you're seeing like an intact yeah. home with like right. everything still kind of as it was like minus the usually deceased person or whatever. Right. But I mean, it's rare that you get to see like a stranger's house like that, like yeah. with everything there. So that, I think the curiosity of that is like as much as just buying the stuff, you know, you get some of that with a yard sale, but 
but not as much as like when you actually get mm-hmm. to go inside and like see how the rooms are set up and like what you could see like what people's obsessions were like their collections or like just their for sure i mean it's just it's it's pretty cool i went to one once in skokie in the, in the basement older gentleman had a workshop and he had all those little kind of tiny drawers with different mm. nuts and bolts and mm-hmm. screws he had the, the you know the array of plastic dozens of drawers and they were all meticulously labeled with like a tape writer wow. or a sticker yeah. written. and he had everything was unbelievably organized and he had one drawer that had his old like bank pass books where they would feed it through the wow. like, typewriter <laughs> yeah, thing and stuff yeah. like and he yeah. had them all like stacked neatly like everything was in order it was very yeah. impressive that's like an archive where you're like, it's as though this were all going to be like handed over to the Smithsonian or something. Like it's not going to be, but it's like when somebody right. has kept it like that intact, you're sort of like, wow, it seems an, like it's for you, posterity. Yes, I know. It's really good. Uh, are you an organized person like in that kind of way? <clears throat> yes. Yeah? Fairly organized. I mean, I w- what you're describing is probably a level beyond anything I would do but i'm pretty organized and i like things to be pretty yeah sorted and kind of mm-hmm. contained i don't like having like well this sounds weird because i do like to get things from thrift stores and stuff like that <laughs> but i was gonna say i don't like having things around that like aren't either being used for mm-hmm. something or are like something beautiful that i just like love like aesthetically i don't like like extra shit in my yeah. space that's how I am. But, like, I will always be organizing and reorganizing, like, the drawer in the kitchen that has the pens. And I'm always, like, trying to come up with a better corralling system. Totally get it. Okay. I figured you would. Yes. I thought that was sort of your... Yeah. That's yeah. my thing. That's kind yeah. of my thing. Yeah. yeah. And, like, my books are... Well, my books at home are mm-hmm. alphabetized. My books in my office are chronological. Okay. Et cetera. Yeah. So you've got it. You're... you're you have or are on the lookout for a system. Yeah. That's going to make me be able to, like, find what I need. Does it I ever stress want. you out to be on that constant uh, lookout for improving the system? Or do you... I mean, I definitely have thought before that, like, I wish I were not inclined that way quite so much. Because I think it seems nice to just be able to, like chill about some of that stuff more and I live with somebody who is much more chill about that kind of stuff and I often think like oh yeah it would be nice to like not be annoyed by like x y and z like that's probably a more peaceful way of living Mm -hmm. you know my like I think I told you this but my mantra for 2016 is do less okay and that kind of applies to like all of these kinds of things in my life where it's like I'm always trying to have it be like just so and kind of like doing more than is actually like required to sort mm-hmm. of, I think of, I often apply the do less to like do less. Like you don't need to bring a complicated, like homemade dish to a potluck. You could be like all the other people who get, you know, something at Trader Joe's and bring it or whatever. Like, so I actually tell myself the do less a lot, but the do less comes into play with the like, yeah. do I have to like, you know, reorganize the drawer of Ziploc bags like mm-hmm. right now in order to like continue with my day or could I? The answer is yes. <laughs> too often <laughs> for me, me it is, but yeah, yeah. Me too. Yeah. I get it. Yes. I will be in the, sometimes in the middle of doing something that 
like that. And I'll be like, what am I doing? This is not the right. priority, but I'm swept up in it. But the other thing is, is like, I mean, this is the part that's tr- even weirder. Is like, it is pleasurable. That's right. That's you try people. To I mean, people satisfy. who are who are sort of tend to operate that way. It, there is something gratifying about yes, like the neat sure. and tidy drawer when you're done, or about right. like taking all that shit to the goodwill and dumping it off, or like whatever it is. Like there is. Totally agree. Sometimes I think the same thing. I think to myself like. That I should be doing something more useful right now, but I'm enjoying myself. Right yeah, now. right. I'm like, this is my idea of fun, so yeah. here we go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, uh, what are some things you like to do to relax? Like if you're like, oh, I'm just going to fo- goof off this afternoon or this evening. Like right. What would be some things you would choose? Um, I would... Besides organizing Ziploc bags, right, in the right. Well, that's top of my list. After that, um, when the weather's good, I love to ride a bike, um, and I've been doing that because we just—I okay. just got a bike here, and then we just got Saul on the little back bike thing. I love to ride a bike. I love to—I love to walk like in a city setting. I like to read things that are not hard, like mm. magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to watch TV. I like to bake things. Um, I like to talk to like people on the phone. If it's like people I miss, I've just like, I feel like I've lived far away from like a lot of my friends for a long time. So mm-hmm. I sometimes like to talk to them. Yeah. Um, and then just like do ridiculous stuff with like Saul, like just play Legos or chase them around or like just something, you know, like where I, if I'm really like, I'm done with work and I'm going to take a break. Um, just like being a goofball with him. seems like one of the good parts of having a kid is it gives you sort of license to to goof around and play with toys. Yeah, it does. I, I do like that part of it. Like it does bring out like a side of people that, I think is often like kind of clamped down mm-hmm. in grown up land or whatever. That part is nice. I mean, it is hard. I will say it's hard because it's like there are times when like he really wants to just like have us, you know, get down on the ground and be silly right. and fun. And it's like, it is hard to feel like, Oh no, I have something I need to do. Like that push and pull is not great. But when you really do let yourself just be like, yeah, we're just, I'm, not going to think about that other thing. We're just going to mm-hmm. do this. Mm-hmm. It is, it is fun. You get in like a different zone. It's yeah. Good. Yeah. When you ride a bike, you just ride a bike leisurely around, or are you like uh, you're not Lance Armstronging it up, right? And like putting on the gear and. No. I mean, no. In fact, I hate, I hate that shit. Yeah. <laughs> I think the idea that people think they have to wear a special costume to ride a bike is like one of the dumbest things i've ever seen and i know some of those people are like hardcore riders and fine you gotta like cushion your junk or whatever but like the people you see riding around and it's like people can you can ride a bike in a normal outfit like look around you people are riding their bike in suits people are riding their bike in skirts people are like you don't need to have like a whole get up to ride a bike also i think the way i've always liked to ride a bike is just either like for transportation like riding a bike to get somewhere right 
which is probably most of how I did it. Like there was a long time I lived in Chicago where I didn't have a car. So mm-hmm. I just like, that was, it was basically the L and biking or like to go on a bike ride just to kind of like tool around. Like you don't necessarily have a destination in mind, but right. if you're like, it's a nice day. I'm going to get on my bike and just like ride mm-hmm. around. Um, so no, I don't go fast. I mean, right. I don't know if I've ever even had a 10 speed bike. Right. I think I've only had five speed bikes <laughs> and zero speed bikes. I mean, yeah. like, it's not, it's not exercise real. I mean, there is exercise of course, but as that's a side not the effect. Point. You're not trying to. Correct. It's just, I just love the, the feeling limits. of like being on a bike. I've always loved that. Like I can still remember in high school, I had a job um, at the yogurt mill, which was a frozen yogurt shop. Mm-hmm. And um, I would ride my bike there and back from the job. And um, I, I loved riding my bike there and back. And I especially loved it. Like we, we would close up at night and it would be kind of late, like 11 or 12. So mm-hmm. like the streets would be just like totally empty. And I had my bike light and I would just like race home on my bike. And it was like, I don't know. I just loved it. Yeah. It's a pretty good sense of freedom. And yeah, especially whatnot. I think when you're that age where it's like, you don't have a lot of that and it just feels very viscerally like liberating. Or mm-hmm. like, yeah. What other jobs did you have when you were young? Um, my first job was at the California ice factory, which was near, it's not a true factory. Um, it was actually right near the place that I eventually moved on to the yogurt mill. But the, the, that job was cool because it was a shaved ice place and it was just like a little stand. It could only fit like two people and you never sat down and there was a huge block of ice and you like shaved it into like the really nice, like fine mm-hmm. ice and then poured the syrups on it that was my first job i was went the summer i was 15 i got like a work permit so i could do it and mm-hmm. then i worked at the yogurt mill for like three years like till i went to college and then in college i worked in the dining hall and i worked as a writing tutor and then i worked in a sandwich shop those were the jobs I had until I was, like, out of college. Mm-hmm. Mostly, like, food or... Right. The writing tutor was was good because at the time it seemed like like the big bucks. It was, like, $10 an hour, which was, to me, right. a lot of dough. And then you had your gig removing peanuts from Kung Pao Chicken. Is that right? <laughs> that was later. That was... Oh, well, yeah. No, that was in college. It was, it, that was when I was doing my internship. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't getting paid for that. And I wasn't allowed to remove the peanuts. That was, that was only. So, so this was you worked. What was the exact gig you had? So I had an internship at the Larry King Live Show, which happened where at Is CNN New York City? in Washington D.C. Okay, D.C. Washington D.C. circa '96, I think, spring of '96. Yeah. Anyway, and there were a bunch of people that worked on that show who were like producers i mean they they had like real responsibilities and titles and everything they had like master's degrees and mm-hmm. but most of what they spent their time doing was like catering to larry king's like every wish and one of those wishes was to eat cashew chicken every night but with the cashews picked out which apparently <laughs> had to be done like in his line of sight or something so they would always order the cashew chicken and then remove all the cashews and give it to him that's real weird yeah 
that that was like a power move on his part? Like, what I is think that? it has to be. Because why wouldn't you just order it without the cashews? Why indeed? I mean, yeah, it's got to be. There's a lot of layers. Yeah. So you were in Washington, D.C. for how long? Just for like four months or okay. something. It was, it like was short. It was like it was like a we were on the quarter system okay. in college. So it was like a quarter, basically. OK. Um, so it wasn't super long, but it was it was fun to be in D.C. like that point in my life. Like it was interesting to kind of see what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it made me like not want to live in D.C. and it made me not want to be in like real world politics mm-hmm. but it was still good to go yeah also good to learn that it sounds like yeah it was probably good because i could have seen a version I mean, because i've always have been interested in politics and law and you mm-hmm. know that kind of stuff like it it could have maybe been a route for me and it's actually possible if i'd had a better internship like i might have had a different experience of it i mean that did Very not help i mean my day in and day out there was so boring and like misogynistic and like lame that it's like who knows if i'd been at like you know the center for reproductive rights or something i might have like had a different you know right trajectory at that point but yeah yeah there it is Mm -hmm. um you talked earlier about baking Mm -hmm. where did you did you teach yourself did you learn from somebody how did that I think initially I definitely learned from my mom. Like I can remember my mom is a very good cook and baker. And um, when I was like nine or 10, she taught me how to make apple pie and it kind of became a thing I did like sort of regularly. Like I felt, I I can remember feeling like, I can't believe I can like make an apple pie. Mm -hmm. Like, um, cause I was just a kid and it seemed like sort of, I don't know, adult or something. And so I went through like a whole phase where I would like on the regular make apple pie. Um, So that's like the first thing I can really remember where I got into it. But then, like I said, my mom was just like doing that stuff. So I kind of just like picked it up just Mm -hmm. from being around. I mean, she would, she was like a real, I mean, she'll, she would make like homemade bread all the time and like, you know, as well as like treats and right. Um, and apparently grind her own flour for well, some period of time. Well, that was back in the day. By yeah. the by, the time uh, she got out of Minnesota, I think she'd she'd moved it on to grocery store flour. Enough, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> she'd like, done her time. Hey, there's people that already grind this stuff. For yeah, it. it's amazing how much time you can save. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty good. Um, I have a question for you about traveling. Mm-hmm. When you go, what kinds of trips do you like to go on? Like, if you think about going. On some, you know, vacation of some sort. Yeah. What kinds of things do you like to do or what kinds of places do you like to go to? Hmm. I think I like to go to places where I can do a combination of, like, city stuff, which because I always really like that, but also have some time built in that's, like, very relaxing Mm -hmm. so like one of my favorite trips i ever took was when mark and i went to argentina after we got married and we spent like the first part of the trip was all in buenos Aires, which is like super intense and lively and like we're out on the town or whatever but then we went to like a national park that's like a rainforest with like the biggest waterfalls in the world and monkeys and like whatever and we did like nothing except like look at waterfalls for x number of days 
And I kind of liked that, like, mm. combo. Like, yeah. where you get the kind of, like, excitement, but then also, like, the downtime. Um, yeah. I think I'm... Mo- I mean, I mostly do like to go to cities. It's And I like to go to places that feel, like, different than where I live. Like, even if it's in the United States. Like, mm-hmm. um, like when I was pregnant, Mark and I were, like, going to take, like a last kind of trip that we could do just ourselves before we had a kid. And we were like living in Salt Lake and we were like, where could we go like domestically that would be just like really feel different and like Mm -hmm. we're in a different place. And we went to new Orleans and it, I mean, it was completely, I mean, you go to New Orleans, you almost feel like you're in like another country anyway, but like it was completely the opposite of Salt Lake city in like every possible way. And I loved that. Like, I love that. It was just like, it felt like you were really, like, you really felt like you got a break from your regular life because mm-hmm. you were just in, like, it was, like, on another planet. When you go away places, do you ever get um, do you ever get lonely or homesick, or are you... Um, I mean, I guess it depends. I don't think I feel lonely or homesick, like, on a trip like that. The time I can remember feeling lonely and homesick was... Um, the thing I mentioned earlier when I spent a summer in Berlin. And mm-hmm. I think that had had as much to do with the language, the like stress of travel, because I was there to try to learn mm-hmm. German. And even though a lot of people there speak English, there's a lot of like daily stuff that's hard to do. Um, that does require <laughs> speak or hard to do if you, if you are not fluent in German. And I remember feeling both just like very tired because of trying to like speak German all the yeah. time. And then also, lonely because I couldn't easily just like strike up a conversation with anybody. Like I I was just sort of like, I felt like I could, yeah, I felt like I talked like a toddler when I did talk. So I wasn't like impressing anybody with my, you know, conversational wit. And then I was just like in this room I was renting out from like this German couple that I could barely talk to Mm -hmm. and just like hiding in there on my futon with like my flashcards. Mm -hmm. That was a little lonely. (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. seems stressful the having to figure everything out language wise and whatnot yeah so. it's just a like a takes a weird toll and you're yeah. just like oh i'd just love to like talk to somebody like easily who i like mm-hmm. know and who knows me or whatever but do you think like do you think that there is um like lessons you learned in that trip that time or something you learned about yourself? Um, I mean, I did have a lot of fun on that trip. So I think I also sort of got over, or at least the part that was tough was like mitigated by getting to be in this like amazing city Mm -hmm. and like explore a lot. So, um, Yeah, I think it was good. I think it was good to just, like, be on my own in a big city where I was just kind of... I'd, like... I'm trying to think of the timing. Yeah, I'd, like, just come out of a very long relationship where I'd, like, lived with somebody. And so I also think it was good to just, like, really be like independent and just sort of like left to my own devices, even if it was sometimes hard. You also kind of feel good when you're able to do something. Like, even if you feel lame a lot of the time, I remember like, this is just like the moment that's like stuck in my head of like 
in a laundromat in Berlin and like one of the washers just like goes fucking bananas and like there's soap and everything everywhere and I have to use my like pigeon German to try to like say to somebody and I sh- I mean I know like the way I like tried to conjugate those verbs and everything was like a mess right but I was trying to say like it doesn't work what do I do like how do I you know and even though it's like embarrassing and I still remember it um it's good to know just like you can do it like you can go live in a city you don't know you don't know the language and like you'll survive and you'll have some fun and you'll feel silly and that's good do you think are you a person who like holds on to regrets or things like that or or do you are you able to kind of let stuff go not that the Um, washing machine incident is a huge regret (laughs) (laughs) um I wouldn't say I have a lot of... I don't spend a lot of time regretting things. I do think I, like, remember times when I was, like, embarrassed maybe more than some people do. And I'm sure we could do a whole deep read on that. But I I do think I have, like, a file of, like, humiliating moments that I can return to again and again. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm not somebody who sits around being like, oh, if only I had taken this path instead of this one or, like... I don't really have that too much. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, um, were you at any point, do you feel like you're a self-conscious person? Yes. I mean, I think a lot of it when I was younger was that I was like super, super tall for, Mm -hmm. well, I'm super tall now, but I was super tall for my age. Like I, so I'm slightly over six feet and I got this to this height when I was 14. Yeah. And I was, you know, which also means I was like five ten when I was in sixth grade or whatever. I mean, it was like, it was very tall and I felt very like, I didn't dislike being tall. There were just times when like, I, you know, that's like an age where like everybody wants to be able to like fade into the background at times. Sure. And I just like never could. So I was self-conscious during, I would say like junior high into early high school, I think I was self-conscious about just, like, yeah, my height. And then I think, uh, it's not really self-conscious. I was very aware of the fact that I was, like, loud and big. And, like, I was alert to, like, how I was probably coming across to people. And it didn't Mm -hmm. really make me change what I was doing. But it was just, like, a kind of reflection self-reflective thing where I was like, yeah, I'm sure I seem like a maniac right now, but that's, <laughs> oh, well. Because <laughs> I've always been tall and I've always had a really loud voice and, like, I would say those are, like, two kind of yeah, defining true. features that I have always been aware of. Mm-hmm. I really have to pee. Okay. We can wrap it up. Well, we don't have to wrap it up. I either need to wrap it up or go use the bathroom. Yeah. Well, it's also and hopefully you can, degrees in here. Hopefully you can edit that part out. Okay. That so part's I'm, for sure staying in. Okay. Great. Um, so is it okay if I go? Yeah. Okay. Stamp. All right. Let's, let's do that. I, I mean, we can either be done or not. We might be. I, I know. Understood. Do you know where to go? There's yeah. right outside the door here. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I was just noticing in the bathroom something I had already taken note of which is that there are almost no signs in this place that are not written to be pithy yeah it's there's no sign that just says like don't flush your tampon down the toilet 
there's like a sign that is like three paragraphs long that's got like all sort of jokes about like a shitlord and like whatever it's else. Kind of exhausting. I mean, it does seem like a little just to think that like every time you try to say something, you have to. I did notice that this is very functional though. There's a sign on the wall that just says checkout sheet, but that's like the first thing I've seen that was just like labeled for like what it is. Yeah, I find that kind of thing to be the sort of like pressure or whatever to be clever. Exhausting. Yeah, it's tiring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you for being on what else? Thank you for having I think, me. I feel like we just scratched the surface, so well, maybe we can do another. <laughs> I'm I'm always happy to be invited back. Okay, great. I'll Thank be you, Nick. Happy to have you back. Thank you, Ella K. Myers. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Else? More to come. Goodbye.